Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay episode from 2022 with the author Daisy Buchanan. She's an award-winning journalist, author and broadcaster and in this episode we dig into the themes in her novel Careering, all about the toxic relationship we can have with our jobs. Hope you enjoy listening to this one. So welcome, Daisy, to the podcast. I can't believe this hasn't happened before, if I'm being honest, but this is always going to happen. I'm really glad we're doing it now. So much to talk about. So welcome. I am so happy to be here. I think I've possibly been on many years ago in a different incarnation. Yes, I think so. Our paths have crossed and zigzagged for years and years. And actually, I wanted to start off with just talking about your career at the very beginning and when we met at the debrief, that sort of magazine era, you write about that so well in your novels and also in other variations in your articles. But I feel like that's really synonymous with who you are. I always think of you when I think of magazines. They are your first love, aren't they, in many ways? Oh, they really, really are. And I was that girl no one I was at school with felt this way. But I've, you know, met, you know, you and other women in my career have that sort of that passion and that nerdiness. And so when skipping forward a little bit, but my first magazine job was at Bliss magazine, the teen girls mag, sadly now defunct. Um, and it was this lovely sort of big shabby office kind of out in the middle of nowhere in Tunbridge Wells. And there were piles and piles and piles of old magazines, back issues of Just 17, American Imports, things like Sassy, which I loved. When did you first know that you had a bit more of an obsession than maybe your friends or that you thought you could do it? Because, and this wasn't really an inkling of like knowing I wanted to be a writer, but I remember stealing a Just 17 magazine from my babysitter and putting it down like the back of the toilet, stealing it from her and her being like, where's it gone? And then me reading it in secret in a cupboard later that night because I wanted to learn about sex. (gasps) Did you have a moment like that? Oh, Emma, that's brilliant. I love the determination and I love the sneaking. And it's I quite sneaky. For me, that's what magazines were, that halfway house, a portal between childhood and an adult world. And I used to get magazines every week or comics and my dad would come home. And I think I started on Twinkle and I graduated to Bunty and then Miz. Um, and I think also there was an element of control and anxiety because that was... I guess I would have been seven, eight, nine. I remember my very grown up cousin, Becky, who's a few years older than me, having minx, I think. And my dad sort of picking it up and leafing through out of curiosity, going, this will never come into the house. But yeah, I think that was my obsession with being grown up and escaping. And it sounds so silly now, but I used to read the Sunday supplements, I think, were where I really got the bug in style, especially, and dreaming about my my life and my London flat where, you know, I think when I was 10, I was like, I'll just, you know, move to Bond Street or something. But I was um, quite pathetically emotionally invested in having, say, Joe Malone candles before I was a teenager. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing that you have carved out such an incredible career and you have so much variety and range to your writing. It's something I've always really admired about you is you are a proper writer, like someone could give you a brief and you can go and write about it. And I think I don't think I can do that. I think I'm very much like I can write about what I know and that's kind of it. But when it comes to writing about your personal life, like when we were growing up in our 20s and working even in offices together at the debrief and stuff, you wrote some really personal stuff back then. I mean, how was that at the time? Because there is an element, I think, of 
like having to mine your personal life quite a bit to make it as a writer. Well, thank you so much for that lovely compliment. I'm really, really moved and touched by it. And I was really lucky at the debrief because uh, we had Hattie and Rebecca, and really fantastic editors and a really fantastic team. And I personally never felt compromised. I was always quite game. I think something that was really healthy maybe is lots lots of the stuff I was writing about I sort of made peace with. At the time I was, um, I think I got engaged when I was at the debrief. I was in a very sort of happy, settled relationship. And so I was able to kind of mine, you know, past misadventures in my personal life. I think I had really good training at Bliss because I looked after the real life section and I had to be incredibly sensitive that lots of the information that teenagers gave me it was sort of I was you know writing them we call it like it's an as told to so it's in the first person and you would think that's what a person's it's like a kind of ghost writing really um and that gave me a really good sense and a really good training I think in terms of how to follow the arc of a story and where the beats fall and how it's a kind of it's an enhanced and augmented version of, of real life and it's sort of hyper real and I think more emotionally mm-hmm. real than real real but I think I was able to to use that and I think I hope I believe I've always done this instinctively but maybe not I think some of my early efforts not so much I've always tried to write for a reader as opposed to me to think of what I would be interested to hear if mm. I was coming at the piece from the outside rather than feeling that it's about me presenting myself in a certain way. I don't know if that sort of yeah. makes sense. No, that does make sense because I always got the impression that you were quite intentional with a boundary between you mm. at home and you and your career. Even though it's you, there is like a line there, I'm, I'm assuming. Oh, of course. And I think that... Who was it who wrote that piece? It was like the personal essay boom or the personal essay boom is dead. And I think that American sites I loved, there was a real range of different people doing different things. And what was the, there's an Exo Jane series. Was it called It Happened to Me? Oh, yeah. And there was a real range. There was a thought catalogue. Thought catalogue as well. I was just thinking about that. So spooky. And some of those personal essays were brilliantly crafted and beautiful. And there's almost nothing I'd rather read than a really stonking personal essay when someone has a sense of humour and someone is using bits of their lives and anecdotes and stories and themselves to illuminate and draw you in and make things sparkle. And I think that it's easy to make the mistake that a personal essay is wholly personal. And there's, you know, stuff that I think, especially when I've written about, say, mental health, and I've wanted to be honest as an act of service to the reader I'm aware that I think lots of my mental health issues make me really dull and boring and self-obsessed and self-absorbed and I'm feeling it a little bit at the moment with book promo and really you know waking up sort of before five in the morning and uh, ruminating and cogitating going round and round and round about very sort of silly things indeed I'm sure you know you know as well because you've written you know sort of beautiful memoir and I think you know you've brought a really you know gorgeous personal dimension into into your fiction as well and you know you are I think you know any writer is in their writing we know when it is useful for people to know that and when it's just sort of gratuitous but also you know that people will say oh you know writing for you it must be just like therapy and that maddens me because you need a therapist it is absolutely not therapy yes it's so true and that's why 
I have realised over the years from reading your work what that looks like, that that craft of like, I'm in control of this piece. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm sharing information with you and I'm writing it in a way that I'm going to be proud of. But this isn't like my heart and soul on a plate because it's my job and I am talented and skilled at this. And that's why I really love your nonfiction as well. But what I do love, and we're going to talk about it in more detail, is your new novel, Careering, and also your previous novel, Insatiable. You have taken, I think things that I know I've read in certain articles and fictionalised a whole world around a topic you know so well. So with careering, what was the sort of first inkling of it? Because, and I'm sort of assuming this, but I have read an amazing piece by you in the past about quitting, the power of quitting a job that makes you miserable. And then when I saw the blurb for careering, I was like, oh my God, you're going to have such an amazing take on this. Oh, thank you so much. And I think When I wrote about quitting, especially, and it's lovely because, you know, we're in this age where people can read what you do and let you know and get in touch if it resonates. And that piece, when I really was right in the throes of it, people still get in touch about that. And I think that is a good five years old now. But I suppose careering was always rattling around partly because when i when i quit that job and you know i got fired from my first ever job after i graduated um i've always had this really intense emotional relationship with work and i think it began at school i've always really really struggled and this is quite candid to have any sort of self-esteem or sense of identity or sense of solid self-love that isn't contingent on me doing well. And I think when I quit that job, it really came to a head and it didn't because, you know, when I left, I was in a state. I was, you know, crying around the clock. I'd burst into tears on a Saturday afternoon because it kind of occurred to me, oh, this is like the furthest point from work and to work. And now, you know, soon like it'll be creeping up again. Um, I was in this fog and, you know, and I wrote that piece and it's unusual for me, I think, because I wasn't writing with any distance. I wasn't saying this is what I learned. And this is going to sound so utterly bizarre and ridiculous, Emma. People in our industry, People sort of know where you are. I think as well, Twitter especially and Instagram, they give me a really false sense of who is looking at me and what they're thinking and what I'm thinking about them. When I got that particular job, lots of people were really kind and kind of congratulated me. And I had, I don't know where I got this from. In my head, I thought, gosh, as soon as people know that I'm quitting and I can't do it, they're just, they're going to think I'm a loser. In my head, there were all of these imaginary people lining up and waiting for me to fail. And it was, I think, Rebecca at the the debrief, as it was then, um, who commissioned it. And she sort of said, how's it going? And I said, like, I've just quit. I think I'm having a breakdown. And she said, can you write about it? And it was a really effective way of not bursting into tears the next time anyone on the internet will realise said, how's work? Because <laughs> I could just say, this is how it is. <laughs> but why don't we talk more about the relationship we have with work? I think you've done that so well in careering through the two characters, Harry and Imogen. They're at different ends of their career and they are in a toxic relationship with their work. Mm. And when you think about it, it is a relationship. We leave jobs because of the way it makes us feel and how it physically affects us, like a marriage, like a relationship. I mean... 
Is that something you've always been interested in talking about? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think I've thought of, you know, trying to write about this um, in terms of nonfiction. Um, it's something you've written so brilliantly and covered. But in the broadest terms, when I started looking for help and advice and information about, you know, how can I work better? I felt completely alienated. There seemed to be so little, if anything, that really spoke to me. And I think I remember at the time, um, it was really like the sort of post like Sophia and Maruso, nasty gal, like hashtag girl boss. And it was like, oh, this is what we do now. You are going to pay £9,000 a month to go and be in a neon co-working space and you're going to have spreadsheets and you're going to have a, a business and you're going to boss it and you're selling your product and whatever. And I'm like, Pardon? <laughs> I, I missed a, a meeting. Some, what, what happened? And because also, when people, when I went freelance, quite soon after I did, people started saying, How do you do it? And like, when I went freelance from Bliss, it was because they said, We need to make cutbacks. You have to go freelance. We can give you a little bit of work every month. It will not quite cover your rent. And I went, Oh, what am I going to do? And I still feel like then it just it wasn't an aspirational thing at all and there was a kind of joke like oh you know freelancers you're just like at home watching daytime tv eating biscuits I mean I was just so scared another thing that um I'm sure will come up later is my toxic and complicated relationship with work has a lot to do with my fear and anxiety around money and that every job I do will be my last and that I will you know eventually you know run out and in my imagination and I know this isn't true because I've I've like I've been broke. I've been really broke. I've never known poverty. I have never been in a position where I couldn't say, move in with my parents and it would be, wouldn't be easy, but it's a luxury that I know, you know, countless people do not have. You've never romanticised freelancing in any of your work, which I've always really appreciated because I think what's also strange with the self-help world which I do move in in some ways is you can write a book sharing your knowledge and your experiences and you know it will help like maybe even one person and then you're just the spokesperson for that thing and it's like no but this isn't for every a book doesn't have to be for everyone like even girl boss probably really was not for everyone mm. but it, it but it changed quite a few people's lives at that point and I find it really interesting that and you've written about this, this economy of career mm. advice. Why does everything have to be for like a one size fits all? It's not. I think, you know, people are looking for answers. Um, the amazing Helen Thorne, who wrote Get Divorced, Be Happy. I think at the beginning she said, I love Helen. I think she's so brilliant and so funny. And um, she said, that, like, people ask me, should I get divorced? And I said, well, to be honest, if you're asking a random woman off the internet, <laughs> yeah, your relationship probably isn't great. Not going to if you're at that point already. And I think so often that's the case with so much advice. And you know, it's complicated because I know we both do sort of workshops and things. I'd really love to to teach more and to teach creative writing. I often think, who am I to do that? What do I know? At that. I think teaching, it, there's a purity around teaching, which is a really amazing value exchange of like, I have something I could maybe offer you. I'm going to give it to you and we're going to have a connection. And that's something that I really love doing. But I agree with you. I think being asked for advice constantly, I'm actually allergic to advice now. I'm like, I don't want to give it because I don't have, no one has the answers but you.
But it's been a real learning for me that not everyone wants your advice. I went through a phase of giving my friends advice that they did not ask for. And guess what? No one wants it. They just want you to listen. And I think it's really interesting that. But but on, on that, because you had an agony art column for Grazia and you are really brilliant at writing those kind of pieces where you are touching on themes and topics. What was that like? Well, the thing is, when we ask people for advice and they supply solutions, more often than not, we have come up with those. There's not really much that we can tell each other. Listening, I think, is all we can do. Just saying to a person, look, you're not crazy for feeling this what you're having is a really human reaction to something that is stressful and there's you know no hierarchy of grief or pain or stress when when you're in it you're in it and we do, it's you know the way we talk to children i think lots of people have made this observation like you know a child like falls and before they start crying the first thing we just like you're fine you're fine and i think that's how we give it but we're so frightened of feelings and pain and our own people's and other people's. And when I got into the old Life Coach podcast, um, it coincided with a period of my life where I was making fairly dramatic changes to the way I lived. Um, this is a bit of a segue, sorry. So I sort of, and I, the conversation I kept having with my lovely long-suffering therapist. So I know I've got a problem with food and alcohol and shopping and work and money. And I feel like if I just get rid of one thing, I'll just do the others more. And I, and she was very, very, very gentle. And it took me a long time to work it out that every single one was, oh, I'm, I'm just so afraid of feeling bad that I haven't felt anything at all in a long time. And what I hoped to do in my Agony Aunt column was to give people a space to, to feel a feeling, to acknowledge it and to say, yes, this is really, really hard, this, you know, the position that, that you're in and to sort of hold people remotely. And I don't know if that was the best strategy. Is there something about also kind of holding it up into the light and being like, this exists? Because I know that your writing is not therapy, but there was also an article you wrote about envy that I think got a massive reaction where you were very candid about work comparison and like you know being jealous of people in your industry and like that is like a really a taboo subject and I remember reading that and being like well thank you for saying it because oh. everyone's thinking it and when we talk about toxic workplaces comparison is is at the heart of that it's just an inevitable bloody part of the human experience and oh how I loathe it it's my most hated and unpleasant feeling but I have to feel it I can't go around it or over it. I can't go through it I can't make a trade-off with God and say if like tell you what every time I put a pair of tights on they'll ladder immediately I will take that if I never have to feel envy again I will stub my toe first thing in the morning every day if I don't have to feel envy again no, that's that is not an option for me but yeah I think it comes back to what I was saying at the very beginning I still I work all the bloody time. I don't know why I have such low self-esteem. It's really boring. It's really annoying. And it's one of those things that I think it's like getting a cold sore when you run down. Like so many of my friends are writers, really successful writers. And it's really great to be in 
physical and metaphorical rooms where you're not the one. It's great to be dazzled and around people who, you know, push you further and lift you up. And, you know, I think you, you are the company you keep. I think it really forces you to look in the mirror and be like, why am I doing this work? Because I think it's pretty exhausting to try and win all the time. Mm. It's And to also see your work as you. That's something that I've really worked on. Like my books aren't me. If someone doesn't like my book, that doesn't mean they don't like me. It, it's it's this sort of merging, I think, of that the identity that I've tried to unravel because I can't have my value put on a product that people buy. We both know that book that people are buying and what they're thinking, it's to do with a thousand decisions made by a hundred people. There are so many people who, and also, you know, people who love your book and think it's the best thing that's ever written. Like, you know, I can't take credit for that because I know, I know I've got to say, well, you know, there's like my amazing editor, Darcy, and, you know, Millie, who, like, if you heard of the book, it's because of Millie and, you know, Becky did the cover. When I'm feeling really off, um, I reread uh, Jane Didion's essay on self-respect, which I feel like is a very basic white woman place to go when you're feeling down. Um, But there is this tricky idea with, I think, self-esteem and solidness. You've really got to know yourself and make peace with yourself. And I know I can't be waiting for someone else to tell me who I am and that can sort of vary from day to day and it's not about me thinking oh I'm the best and I'm the most wonderful and it's all going to be brilliant amazing I'm like well no I'm really average in so many ways I've been very very fortunate I live with lots of unearned privilege and I benefit from that privilege um Comparing writers is always apples and oranges some people will think I'm good some people won't it's entirely subjective Yeah. And I wanted to ask you actually about your first novel, because I read somewhere you had said that that was a real labour of love, getting to the point where it came out, because we don't really see the behind the scenes often with books, especially Insatiable, which had such a brilliant launch and the cover is just so bold and it's like, here it is. But actually you kind of peel back the curtain a little bit on that because that was quite tough, wasn't it, for you? You put it in a drawer for a while and things. Yeah, and I'd really lost a lot of confidence when I wrote my um, non-fiction books, um, How to Be a Grown-Up and later The Sisterhood. I think, you know, this is super common and an experience of publishing that nobody likes talking about and something I've only really just made peace with is... Um, in the first instance, How to Be a Grown-Up did not sell. And it was sort of, you know, it wasn't the, the greatest disaster in publishing ever, but I certainly felt like it was at the time. Um, People make you know in a roundabout way in publishing that something's not selling as much as they hoped. Well, because they wanted to change <laughs> so the annoying. title. And I was on holiday and there had been a lot of, you know, promotion and publicity and that was this real like complicated disconnect for me because I there had been a lot of buzz and I'd written lots of things sort of for magazines and newspapers you know there were parties there were things to do there were events and then I was really exhausted I was really just frazzled and fried and frightened and I'd gone to um, I think possibly Barcelona for Primavera and that when I was there, I got an email. It was like, so uh, because of the disappointing sales, we're thinking about changing the name for the paperback. And I'd gone on this whole, and it ruined it. My lovely reward holidays, like I didn't deserve a rest. I'd worked my arse off. And why? 
and I didn't know and I'd still managed to like let everyone down my absolute best just was not good enough and yeah I so it was a bad time all round um my very first niece had been born I was really struggling with the fact that I didn't want to be a mother and that was something I felt hugely guilty about. I just moved to Margate after 10 years in London and I loved it dearly, but it was all very like cool and trendy and quite creaky. And I just, and to be honest, Margate isn't creaky at all. It anywhere can be. But in my head, I was like, oh, and like, I'm not I'm not excelling as a writer, I'm not excelling as a maternal human, I'm not excelling in my new town. I'm just a big old failure. I'm a mess. Um and then in the wreckage of all that, when I was feeling really tender and vulnerable and low, this ghost of a story sort of came to me. And I just, you know, I started writing. I felt like I had nothing to lose because I was so lost and lonely. I just sort of, you know, went for my life and I was like, I like filth. I'm going to write filth. And it was this, but also being really, really fascinated with the complex emotional reality of, I suppose, a kind of polyamory, like what happens when a third person comes into a couple. And I don't know if it's because I there had been periods in my 20s where I'd felt super lost and super lonely. And I'd never been in that position, but, you know, I sort of thought about it and fantasised about it, not, you know, just in a sexual way, but in a having a, a boyfriend where I felt very isolated and alone in the relationship. And I'm like, you're never safe with just one person. One person could dump you two people. Safety in numbers. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? And also, you know, you'd sort of get to be the, um, you know, the one in the middle. <laughs> you'd have the undivided attention of two people. Ah, this is... <laughs> Do you think do you think there's something about reaching that sort of low point where you do reach for your interests again or you reach for like your real creativity? Yeah, I think so that I'd done the work that I thought was what people wanted me to do and then you think oh bugger that's a bit like I suppose getting fired from my first job doing a very sensible job in financial PR and thinking that was what I should be doing and that I needed to be grown up and be serious. And I, you know, I'd graduated and I was like, I was, I was 22, Emma. I was really old and really mature <laughs> and I had to do things. And then I got fired from the job and it was like being dumped by someone I didn't fancy. And that's when I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. What's the worst that can happen? Why don't I apply for this amazing, exciting, thrilling job at Bliss, which I'm never going to get, but, you know, nothing ventured. And I wonder if that's something that a lot of humans have, that we're so much hardier than we realise. And being strong isn't not reacting. Being strong isn't being unmoving and unyielding. It's about that's magic that gets shaken loose when you're at your lowest this little magic spark sort of floats back up and helps you and what I would say about Insatiable is I had a really fun time <laughs> writing that book I really enjoyed myself it's funny because I've written before about how Control Alt Delete my first book didn't sell very well at all and I genuinely thought, and I was only 26, and I'd written a book, and I thought it was, I, I liked it. Um, but I was told, you know, it failed. And I thought at that point, my career was over. And that is how much work can make you feel so terrible about yourself. Because I remember being on like a romantic holiday, like with my boyfriend, life was great, but I was crying because of work. And I think it goes back to the theme of this podcast, 
of this episode, which is like work is like the third person in the room. Work can make you feel good or bad about yourself. But I also think that the journey is like untangling yourself from that. But I've had that. Oh, love. I mean, you know, I really like Control Delete. And I remember, you know, being so dazzled by it and by you. And again, it seems, you know, to be so sort of shiny and complete and and fully formed. And and this podcast wouldn't exist without it. So it was a success in many ways, but it doesn't feel like that at the time. I mean, I had no idea that, you know, that about sales. And that's the worst thing about with how to be a grown-up I felt as though my like my number of shave like three copies or whatever it was like etched on my head that everyone was looking at me and everyone knew and it was like getting fired from the job and like oh she thought she could write a book did she she thought oh we were waiting for this to happen and you know and even now and I've really got to be look these these people don't exist they do not exist they're not thinking about me no one is thinking about me do you have any advice for anyone? I mean, we've just said don't listen to anyone's <laughs> advice, but uh, wear a green but, hat. <laughs> but genuinely, about those moments of feeling really in the pits of despair. Just for anyone listening right now, you know, there's a percentage of people, a really high percentage, who leave a job because of the boss, not because of the job. Work politics can be really toxic. Work can be toxic. I mean. Is there anything you can sort of share? Just because I feel like you have learned so much about this. I think that while I am the biggest fan of quitting when you can, and I think sometimes a really toxic situation gets so in your head that you really can't make a move until you have quit, I think it's really important to kind of to get your head right and not leap into another job thinking that's going to be the solution because if you are damaged by a difficult toxic work situation you are going to struggle to use a very bad analogy it's like breaking your leg sprinting and then thinking oh it's okay I'll just play some hockey and heal it like it's Mm. Doing the work is really, really hard. I think that you have to remember confidence is so fragile and so precious and so complicated. And there might be people listening now who feel horrible about their work, but like they aren't worth anything else and they can't go anywhere else. Like you are, I promise you are talented. And I promise there are people out there who will know that is how to motivate you, to protect your talents and to support them. I also think the really bad bits sometimes with mental health in general, I often think I less so now I've stopped eating oysters, but I get food poisoning fairly frequently, at least, you know, once a year. And it's a full sort of, you know, 12 hours up all night in hell. And it you just, you feel like it's never going to stop and it stops. And when the clouds part and you're sort of sliding around on the tiles of your bathroom floor, you know, I I never thought this would happen and I feel euphoric. And I think our awful emotions can be a lot like that too. So I think you your one job is to be extra kind and extra tender with yourself because you're not getting that. I think another difficult thing is that we learn quite quickly to kind of externalise the validation that we seek. Um, we might have talked about this before. Do you like yourself or is that a job that you expect other people to do for you? I think I've fallen into that trap before work of feeling so low 
And so needing this validation, no one is supplying. Great, I'll double down. I'll do more. They'll give me more. We have to validate ourselves first. Everything ends. And that can be quite destabilizing and stressful, but also you're not, nothing is permanent. Nothing is there forever. I think in romantic relationships, when you start thinking too much about forever, you can lose something. And obviously we all like to think in the long term, it's a very human thing to do. But I think to just really get through day to day, trusting there is light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm not going to think obsessively beyond the next 24 hours. I think that can really help. That's really, really good advice. That was so lovely and a really, really good reminder. And it's interesting when you work in the way that we work, which is, you know, one project to the next. I I just wondered in between those jobs, like say you're in between a book that's just come out and the next book you're pitching, those are the those are the moments I think where you can be tested to not let work make you feel nothing again mm. or like you are floating around looking for the validation. I mean, do you feel like you've got to the point where you can stand in that sort of groundedness in between projects? Are you still like me where you're like, oh God, what am I working on next? Oh, it's the hardest thing, Emma. It's the hardest thing. And this summer, so I was writing Careering. I was ghostwriting a book and I was moving house and there was quite a lot to do around Insatiable. And um, I was really ill as well. And I had a a seizure in the summer and I really felt like everything was being piled on top of me and piled and piled and piled and I was so freaked out and stressed and overwhelmed and it was funny because my deadline day and the final like everything I don't have to do anything anymore everything was going to be done by July the 19th which was also like freedom day and I'd not even realised that it was freedom day because it's my personal freedom day and I thought oh I'm just I'm going to have the best summer ever did I have the best summer ever did I bollocks (laughs) I got really like wound up about you know what is my purpose? I mean, I had lovely times. I did really lovely, fun things, but I also did spend a lot of time worrying. And that was all that I'd ever been dreaming of. So all I want to do is to just enjoy the process. Well, good note to end on in a way, because I think you have so much to knowledge to impart, which you have. And thank you so much. And I am so sorry that you went through that but because I remember at the time when you went through that so it's so lovely to see you on the other side of everything and your novels are brilliant you are brilliant they're hilarious they're moving they are really insightful and and very witty and all of your writing is so thank you for coming on the podcast and to everyone listening um, please do go and support the book that's out now and I'll leave the links below but thank you oh thank you so much for having me I've loved it can we do it again we, we will <laughs>